friends, it's me, Stephanie, your host of Immersive Crime. And I do know I've been your long-lost host of Immersive Crime. I missed a week of releasing an episode, and I do apologize so much. There's just been so much going on with our kids. Everybody's in something. Last week was like a big week of things, and it just got caught up. Plus, I'm working on a cosplay for December slash also Halloween, and it's just taking a lot of my time, so I do apologize. I know there's no excuse for not posting a new episode, but, you know, I truly appreciate everyone, and I just wanted to say I'm sorry um, for not being on time, but this week is going to be a different type of story. It comes from historicalcrimedetective.com, and it's from the 1930s, uh, 1936 to be exact, you know, a time in uh, true crime that was kind of the Wild West, so they say, or so I say, I guess, Um, you know, nothing was preserved, nothing was treated as significant, I guess, um... But yeah, let's get into it. This is the story of the corpse and Coffee Creek. Right. So this story starts out with a man named Charles Sailway, and he slowly made his way home across a small culvert over Coffee Creek. He owned a farm that was just outside of Mesopotamia, Ohio, and almost daily he would walk down this same route down State Route 57, State Road Route 57, And he would cross the creek to get into his field that he worked every day. And you know, in 1936, that's how people made a living, farming and other things like that. And this afternoon of September 24th of 1936, the autumn was just starting to set in. And it was hanging in the air and Charles could feel it. And it would not be long before frost would be on the ground and farming would be over for the season. Um, He worked the farm with his father and his wife, and they would always put in a hard day's work out there in the field. And it was the kind of work that gave a feeling of purpose and, you know, also gave a feeling of wanting to have some downtime, looking forward to the winter and having some rest because farming is very hard work. So as he leaned on the railway of the uh, creek bed right there across from the creek, waiting for his wife and his father to catch up with him, uh, he noticed that there was something strange in the creek. And he kept trying to look at it, and he was trying to figure it out. And you know, it's one of those things that like, your mind is like, I know what that is, but is it really? And so as his family joined him at the railing, he pointed into the creek wordlessly to the bobbing craziness that was floating in the creek and his wife said what is it Charles what are you trying to show me and Charles was just staring at it and he said it looks like a man and his wife shuddered and she was like a man but where is the rest of the body like that's not a man that's just a head in the creek 
And Charles gulped and he replied to her, it looks like it's just a head down there. You're right. Oh my gosh, it's just a head. Now, his father was also there and the father said, I don't see anything. I don't see a body. I see a head also. So as the three of them stood there, they looked at this purple, blotched-faced, closed-eyed head staring at them, or not staring at them, in the water. And as they stood there, uh, Charles took his way and raced home to the telephone to phone the police. And he said, and I quote, there's a dead man out near my farm on Route 57. And he said, I'll wait there with my family until you get there. He's down in the creek. So as Charles returned back to his wife and his father, he studied the face of the man in the water. And people in that in this area of the country, they all knew everyone. But Charles, nor his father, nor his wife knew who this dead man was. Shortly after that telephone call, the sheriff, Roy Hardman, and his captain, George C. Salen, of the Warren Police Department, arrived to the scene of the crime. And accompanying them were several officers and the coroner, who was named J.C. Renshaw. And this was in the Trimble area, Trimble County. Now, the farmer, Charles, and his wife flagged them down and was selling them right down there in the creek. You got to go down there and find it. And the sheriff is quoted as saying, first we thought it was just the head, but now they could see where the body was weighted down by something and that the head was just sticking out. And I'm sure that this was like the grossest sight that they had ever seen because it was 1936 and these things just don't just happen. And if they did, people just didn't find them. or report about it. In a short time, there were tons of people that were at the farm or at Coffee Creek um, to see what was going on, to see why there were so many people gathered around the area as things happen, you know, today even. Mob mentality, I suppose. The officers were assisted by the bystanders to get the body out of the creek. And it was so the coroner could inspect the body, which is so crazy to me to think about, like, all the fingers that touched this poor man's body. I mean, the things we know now, right? Hindsight 2020. Now, while the coroner went about his work, the sheriff and the captain examined the wire and the things that had been um, attached to the body to help hold it down. And the sheriff is quoted as remarking, whoever did it must have felt pretty sure that it'd be a long time before this body would rise to the surface. But the weight slipped down around the feet and there was enough buoyancy in the body left for the head to float to the surface. No wonder it looked like a head without a body, end quote. Now, the captain, Salen, also commented and said, looks like the fellow was pretty well beaten before before being tossed into the creek. This is the kind of beating that gangsters give their double crossers. And that, to me, screams 1936. Like, gangsters, pinstripes, flappers, all those good things. Bootlegging, booze. What a wild time. 
The sheriff shrugged. There might have been some truth in that theory. The spot, the spot where the body was found was not far from Youngstown, Ohio, and it was about 40 miles out of Cleveland. Perhaps some rival gangsters had been warring, or maybe the killing was an outcome of a strike trouble in the Youngstown steel area. Coroner Henshaw estimated that the corpse had been in the water a week. There was not much else he could discover without a thorough examination, so the body was taken back to the morgue in West Farmington. After questioning the farmers and the farmers' neighbors and failing to find anyone who had heard or noticed anything unusual in the past week to 10 days, the officers and everyone in accompaniment with them went to the morgue to search for a clue on, of the man's identity. Upon examination of his clothing, it revealed very little. However, there was a note that was in the wallet of the dead man, and the clue that they found was the identification of um, a common type. It was an identification card and um, it had some information on it. It had the name of a man named Charles Steffies Jr. and an address from Cleveland, Ohio. And there was also a space on my identification card that was like a in case of kind of thing. And it said, in case of accident, notify Catherine Bunjvac 1144 East 76th Street, Cleveland, Ohio. And so the captain and the sheriff were all so excited about this clue that they found on this body that Captain Salen went on to announce, well, boys, that gives us something to start with. We better get in touch with the Cleveland police and see what they know about Steffi's. So they called the detectives and it was Carl Zarelli and Ralph McNeil who were working on the four to midnight shift. And they talked about this body found in Coffee Creek and they were asking about Charles Steffies Jr. And they were asking about a girl named Catherine Bunjvik. And so things quickly began to get started. Everybody was humming with excitement to figure out what happened to this body in Coffee Creek. And a quick check with the files revealed a record on Steffies. And what that record revealed is that he had been arrested and charged with auto theft about a year prior to his being found in Coffee Creek. He had pleaded guilty, and since it was his first offense, he was placed on probation. And um, some more details were disclosed that he was also an auto mechanic, and he was 26 years old. It was hardly the record of a person who might be involved in gang war, but the police department was to expect anything and consider everything as a, possi a possibility until proven otherwise. If he were from Cleveland and had been dead a week, perhaps someone had reported his disappearance to the Bureau of Missing Persons. After all, Cleveland's a pretty big city in 1936. After a check, it disclosed that on Sunday, September 20th, a call had come in to the Bureau of Missing Persons, and it was a worried female voice that had reported the disappearance. And it appears that this is like a call-in line. I'm not familiar with, you know reporting a missing persons in 1936 but what this article tells me is that the caller was over the telephone 
and she said, I'm worried about my friend Charles Steffies Jr. I had a date with him last Thursday night, and he said that he had telephoned me the next day. He didn't call, and I thought maybe he was sick. Charlie always kept his word with me, and when I found out he hadn't been to work since Thursday and that no one had seen him, I got frightened. Aw, that's so cute. Nowadays, like, people don't call or text, you're just being ghosted. The officer tried to calm her down, who was working the missing person's line. And he told her that men often drop out of sight for a time, 99 out of 100 times, they will turn up again in their own good time. But this girl who was reporting Charles Steffi Jr.'s missing gave her name as Catherine Bunjvik, by the way, said that he would never go away without telling her. The report had been investigated at the time, but no trace of Charles Steffi's had been found. There were no accident victims who answered his description of the hospitals or the morgue, no one in jail, nothing like that. That is, no one until Charles Saywell, the farmer, and his wife and father found the bodiless corpse in Coffee Creek. It began to look like as if the woman's intuition to trouble had proven correct. Now, with this missing persons report and the body found in Coffee Creek, the department began to get busy. Detectives Zaccarelli and McNeil went out to check on Steffi's to see if they could find anything about him. And they went to the address that they found in his wallet. And this turned out to be a rooming house run by a man named Rudolph Zupanik. And this is where Steffi's had lived with his brother. And anytime I see rooming house, I immediately think of Forrest Gump. And it was the kind of place that his mom would run where people were like, would buy a room for however long and then have breakfast together. Like even Elvis roomed at Forrest Gump's mom's place. That's what I think of. And this is kind of how it was, I suppose. But when the detective questions Zupanic and the victim's brother, they both kind of said the same thing. They said that he left Thursday night and they hadn't seen him. And he was the kind of person that would just go about his own business and never said whether he was coming or going or when he would be back. And his brother was solid in that same sentiment. And also included that several people had been asking for him since he had been gone and just said that he could really be anywhere. And when they went to the garage where Steffi worked, his employer basically said the same thing and just said that he probably decided to quit and that some person was coming around asking for him, but he wasn't sure who that little guy was. Um, and it also said that, you know, he was known to be saving his money and he was a good worker. And so what the detective basically deducted is that from their experience, when a man who had a brush with law starts to settle down and save money, there's one reason why, and that's a woman. And they knew who this woman was because she filed the missing report, and that was Catherine Bunjevic. However, before going straight to Catherine, the detectives came across Steffi's sister, and they got that address from the uh, rooming house um, because it was like, you know, next of kin kind of thing. And she had some new information to give. 
and she said, Charlie and Catherine were at my house last Thursday evening, September 17th of 1936. We had a lot of fun kidding around and messing around and playing around, but they had to leave early. And Charlie complained of not feeling well. And she said she didn't think that his not feeling well was anything serious, but it did seem like he was worried about something. And she said that Charlie was usually a very happy-go-lucky man, but that night he was different, acted a little as if he were afraid of something. She goes on to say, I thought it was my imagination, but when Kate, that's what we call Catherine, came over on Saturday looking for him, I got kind of worried. It wasn't like Charlie to miss a date, especially with her. He was crazy about her, and he had talked about marrying her. So... The girl whose name appeared on Steffi's identification card was more than just an acquaintance or a friend. Catherine Bunjvik's parents also was interviewed by the detectives, and they told the detectives that their daughter was out with her fiancé, Mr. Miller. The officers concealed the surprise that they felt with this announcement. Steffi's had talked to his sister about marrying Kate, but she apparently had other plans, or at least that's the way it looked. When they asked about Charles Steffies Jr., the Bunjvics instantly seemed different. Seemed almost pensive, kind of side-eyeing, and they replied, yes, we know him. He frequently called on our daughter. And the detectives just blatantly asked, well, was he in love with her? And they replied to the detectives, perhaps she's a very pretty girl. Lots of men have liked her, but we didn't want her going out with Steffies. He isn't dependable. He hasn't any money. Mr. Miller can give Catherine a nice home and automobile. He's the kind of suitor for our girl. What a wild time. Like your parents pick your husband. I mean, I know in some places of the world that still happens today, but woo, it's wild. The detectives were kind of like taken aback and they're like, well, okay, you know, what are we going to do? And they just told her parents, well, when she comes in, let her know the police want to talk to her. And it's recorded that the parents showed no emotion at the knowledge that the police wished to talk to Catherine. If police came to my door and was asking about my daughter and want to talk to her, I'd be like, what is happening? I'd be so scared. But early the next morning, Catherine appeared at the headquarters of the police department. Her parents had been right when they said that their daughter was pretty. Everyone was taken aback about how beautiful she was. And it was not hard to imagine several young men in love with her all at the same time. Sergeant James Hogan questioned her. He noted that she seemed greatly worried about her missing friend. The last time I had a date with Charlie, he seemed quite upset, is what she told him. She goes on to say that she asked Charlie to tell her what was bothering him, but he would not tell her. And as she talked on, the background of the case became clear. Here was a fun-loving young girl torn between the duty to her parents and her own heart. Steffi's appealed to her romantic taste, but her family frowned upon him. Miller, who she was fianced to, she explained to the detective that his name was Joseph Konsaka, sometimes used for business reasons, was a wallpaper hanger whom she had known for a long time, and her parents thought that he would make an ideal husband for her. 
He was the old-fashioned type, the sort who would never give a girl any worries nor any thrills. So basically, she said he was a very boring person. I mean, he literally watched wallpaper dry for a living, so he probably was boring. But Catherine liked Steffi's. He was full of fun, liked to dance, have a good time. And he made Konsaka slash Miller seem old and dull. A common enough tragedy up to that point, but it didn't tell us what happened. It didn't tell us what had been worrying Steffi's that night that he was last seen alive with Catherine. Could he have been involved in some racket or forced to take a ride? Air quotations. I feel like that's like slang for, you know, get in my car, we're going to go for a ride, we're going to kill you in a creek. Or was it perhaps another woman whose jealous fury spent itself on her betrayer? I'm telling you, the 30s, what a time. Now, the detectives discarded the latter theory at once. The facts of the crime told them that Steffi's was in love with Catherine slash Kate. And typically, in the 30s, apparently, women did not transport their victims 40 miles and dump them in a creek with a slab of concrete to weight them down. Who would think that a little woman would be able to lift a slab of concrete to place it on a male body? <laughs> but this was the 30s. Another detective, Gordon Shibley, went to West Farmington to verify the identification of Steffi's. They questioned several of the nearby residents, but could find could not find anyone who knew anything about this mysterious person or anything else. And the killer had taken pains to cover his tracks well. Um, darkness had covered the sinister work. It was done at night. That's all they could come up with. I mean, it was the 30s wild times the detectives could not find anything that would tie Steffi's to any gang affiliations um nothing that said that he had any business or behavings that involved him in any gangs or crossed anyone that was any gangs so that was ruled out as an explanation when officers returned to question Catherine once more over and over she repeated the same story of her friendship with Steffi's and how she felt about him and the last time that she had seen him she would continue on to say, he left me at my house early Thursday evening. He said he didn't feel well. I thought maybe he had another date, but then I felt sure he wouldn't go out with any girl but me. He said that he'd call me Friday, and when he didn't, I was kind of annoyed. Joe asked me to go out with him that night, and since I, didn't had, since I hadn't heard from Charlie, I went. Joe is Mr. Miller, by the way. They then asked her, did you tell Konsanka about Steffi's? And she said, yes, I mentioned it. And I said I was worried. And it was the first time that he had ever disappointed her. And Mr. Miller said not to worry about it. And he'd probably be able to explain it when she saw him next. And the detectives went on to ask her, did you often discuss Steffi's with your other suitor? 
and she did reply quite often. He asked me a couple of times to give up Charlie, to tell him who he was. The detective's eyes betrayed no particular interest, meaning they didn't tell her they were interested in that fact. And they went on to ask her, did the boys ever fight about your intentions? And she said, of course not, in a quick reply. She said, why why would they? Joe helped me try to find Charlie. He went to his rooming house, the garage where he worked, to help discover what happened to him. So, that tells me that was the, air quotations, little guy that was asking around his work in the rooming house for him. And then she went on to tell the detectives that it was Joe who made her come right down to headquarters when we found out that you were looking for me. He said it was best for me to go right away. And so... The detectives asked her, how did Joe act Friday night after Steffi's disappearance? Was he nervous? Was he excited? Like, what was his demeanor? And she said, why, no. He never talks a lot, but it, I didn't notice him acting any different, any nervous or anything like that. Why should he? And so, you know, they were just telling her, that's what we ask. We just ask you questions. Like, calm down. Everything's fine. We're just figuring it out. Trying to figure out who, who killed him. So the pathologist did more reporting on the body to figure out what was the true intention of killing. You know, was it strangulation, gunshot, etc., etc.? Was it a beating? Things like that. And, um, you know, they wanted to know what, whether the victim was alive when tossed in the water or whether it was a dead body that was weighted down and shoved under the culvert. Friday night, the officers were sent to Mr. Miller's home, or Kunsaka, whatever he's going by, on East 88th Street to question him. And it destined to be quite a time. He was not home, and they had to wait. It was 5.30 in the morning before the short man came to his home, and he was met by a group of detectives. And Kinsaka, Mr. Miller, whatever you want to call him, um, didn't act surprised. He acted, as, he acted as if it were not unusual for a couple of officers to be waiting for him to take him down to the police station. And he didn't show any evidence of embarrassment that he was there or anything, you know, out of the ordinary. And while they were waiting, they did go through his mail, which I think is really weird. But they did find several written letters um, to Catherine, and it was just like love letters. Um, but there wasn't anything that was like passionate or anything like that. There was, there were just letters. And they were in the basement. They were doing a search, and that, that's how they found these letters. Hmm.
They decided to do a little old-fashioned psychology on Mr. Miller, which is crazy to say, 1936. And they took them out to a garage, and uh, it was still in Cleveland, and they started to ride near Mesopotamia in Coffee Creek. And they were headed out to the spot where Steffi's battered body was found. And they planned a little play out, I guess, like good cop, bad cop kind of thing, but not really. And, um, they were trying to be cool and calm and collected, and they were trying to reinforce the visit of the scene of the crime and trying to get him to kind of confess. And they didn't do a lot of talking. Mr. Miller continued to answer all the questions that they asked of him. When Sergeant Hogan encouraged him to talk about himself, he just nodded sympathetically and would answer questions and talk about business being slow, just weird, normal things, you know? And Mr. Miller mentioned that he usually carried his tools, brushes, and pails in his car. And when they were asking him if he was in love with Catherine Bunjvik, he said, sure, yeah, yeah, I'm in love with her. She's nice enough. She's pretty, whatever. And he went on to say, I think some gangsters got after Steffi's, probably took him for a ride, you know, got mixed up in some bad company for a while there. Took him for a ride. I feel <laughs> means a whole different thing, I guess, in 1936. They didn't answer him when they would, Mr. Miller would give these suggestions. They didn't answer any questions. They just kind of waited, applied the pressure in some silent manner. And at night, Coffee Creek looked sinister. The foliage was beginning to turn. The countryside was rich in autumnal hues. And at night, it just seemed so dark and violent and cold. To bring Mr. Miller back there, they waited in silence. And they were just giving him this pressure. And they weren't sure what was going to happen. It was just so dramatic. And Hogan went on to say, I think we've got this fellow. It all links up. Two of my men found his car. And what, what do you think they found in it? And the other guy said, what? They were just kind of talking amongst themselves, but enough for Mr. Miller to hear. He said, blood on the upholstery. And the other one said, no. And one said, yes, one of the windows was smashed. I think it happened when this bird, Mr. Miller, swung at him and the brush had missed. And the guy said, brush? And he said, didn't you know he found a heavy pasted brush in his car with blood on it? He hit Steffi's over the head with his paintbrush again and again and struck him until he was dead. And then tried to weight him down so he wouldn't be discovered. And this is all kind of in whispering ways. And they watched the man who was standing so close. And they had thought of him as meek and mild and small because he was small in stature. But what they saw was amazing. There was a change taking place. He listened to this detective's outline of what had happened to the, on the fatal night. And Mr. Miller's eyes glittered. It was almost as if he was reliving the crime and enjoying it. The meekness was gone and replaced with an expression of burning hate. And suddenly, he interrupted him. Mr. Miller turned to him. He faced the detectives and he said, sure, I killed him. I did it. 
The confession was so unexpected. It didn't give them any time that they wanted. It wasn't like how they thought it would play out. They had some details. They had proof that would stand up in trial. It was not a Cleveland case, but it was going to get Mr. Miller talking. Once he had started, the paper hanger seemed eager to tell the whole story and get it off of his mind. This shy little man for a week had gone on about his affairs as usual with a horrible secret hiding behind his smallness, his colorless face. He had even joined in the search for the victim, which as we know is not uncommon. Apparently seeking this would help in favor of Miss Catherine, Miss Bunjvik. All this time he had known that the man she loved and waited for was lying in the cold waters of Coffee Creek, a heavy slab weighting him down. Mr. Miller opened up in earnest. On the ride back to Cleveland, the story was even more grim and cold-blooded than they could ever have imagined. He goes on to say, I was ready to marry the girl. I wanted her. I was getting along fine. I had a good business and good prospects. I could give her things that was more than she could imagine. I was in love with her and she seemed to like me well enough. Until that Steffi's fellow came along last April, then things changed. The detectives could picture this little paper hanger paying his court more to the parents than her daughter, such as they did in old country. He loved the girl in his fashion, and a great rage began working in his slow mind when he found himself being cut out. He told the detectives that Steffi was just a no-good man. He was a bum. I used to follow the two of them around and spy on them. A couple of times I met him and begged him to give up the girl, but he always just laughed and told me to beat it. Once, he told me Catherine wanted to marry a man. He insulted me. Steffi's, knowing that a girl preferred him, had confidence and just rubbed it in his face. Mr. Miller went on to say, I met Steffi's early in the week and told him I knew he had been in jail. The paper hanger went on. I threatened to tell her parents what I knew so they'd make Kate give up. Steffi's tried to laugh it off, but I told him it was time for a showdown. I told him to meet me Thursday night and he kept trying to get away early enough to make it. Wild West, I'm telling you. That meeting is what the garage mechanic had on his mind the night that his sister and his sweetheart had last seen him. The story of feeling ill had been invented to make sure that he could get away in time to meet the paper hanger. The girl's intuition that something was worrying him had been correct. The men met by appointment at a bar parlor on East 53rd Street, and Mr. Miller began pleading with him to step out of the picture and Steffi's drank a stein after stein of beer and quickly lost his former dread. The oddly matched couple moved from one beer place to another. At each, they consumed several drinks, and Steffi's ended up switching to liquor as the night wore on. Once again, Mr. Miller's car, they continued the discussion. Mr. Miller goes on to say, sitting in the car on East 70th and Quincy, I told Steffi's that he had to give up he got mad. He took out a whiskey bottle he had in his pocket and he swung it at me. I got scared. He was bigger than me and I reached in the back of the car for my paste brush. I grabbed a hold of it and hit him over the head. 
And now I'm imagining this paste brush, like if you never rinse your brush from acrylic paint and you know how it gets like that build up and it just like becomes so thick. That's probably how this brush was. It's kind of like a hammer at that point. Mr. Miller stopped for a moment as if remembering while he was telling the story and a shudder shook his little frame. He was thinking perhaps of sickening thud which each blow had made on the victim's head. And then he continued. I had to hit him a lot of times before he became quiet. Then I got panicky and pushed his body into the back seat. It was evident that Mr. Miller had believed his victim dead after the first blow. And he even stopped to change a tire on his car before driving back to his own garage. He goes on to tell the detectives that he stayed in the garage a while not knowing what he, what to do. That he was scared someone might come after he was there for a while. Steffi's came to life again and started to fight some more. He wasn't dead. He just had to hit him with a heavy iron clamp at this point. That's what he told the detectives. This poor Charles Steffi's, he had must have been so great and in love that he just wanted to fight back. It's just so heartbreaking. Then um, Mr. Miller went on to say to continue to tell the story about how he went around the corner of his house, found the wire, found a chunk of concrete, and then drove him out to the dumping place. And then came the most amazing part of the gruesome story. The killer had driven nearly 50 miles through the night when the trussed up body of his victim in the backseat of his car and at each bridge and culvert he had stopped. With his flashlight, he peered into the water, trying to determine its depth. Mr. Miller was looking for water deep enough to cover all the evidence of his crime. And he goes on to say, the water under the concrete bridge seemed to be deep enough, so I dragged the body out of the car, made sure the concrete was securely fastened to it, and pushed it over the rail. It made a loud splash and disappeared. I stood there watching for a few moments until the water was quiet again. Then I got in my car and drove home. In a dispassionate tone, Mr. Miller ended his confession. Later, he willingly repeated it at headquarters and signed it. He seemed glad that the matter was off his chest, but showed not the slightest regret for his crime. Over and over again, and as if in self-justification, he repeated the words, he was just a bum. The detectives found it hard to believe that that night after he killed the young man she loved, he went out with Kathy, with Kate. To all appearances, the same shy, harmless man whom her parents wanted her to marry was just that. He went on to tell detectives, sure I saw her, we had a date together. I knew she wouldn't be busy, so I called her, but she didn't know a thing about any of this. She's a fine girl, and he was just a bum, just a bum. The detectives turned over Mr. Miller to the Trumbull County authorities for trial on April 16th, 1937. After seven months, Prosecutor Reagan accepted a plea of guilty on second-degree murder. And Mr. Miller, also known as Joseph Konsaka, was sentenced to life imprisonment at the Ohio State Penitentiary, which was in Columbus, Ohio. 
The case of the two men who loved one girl became history, but to this day, Farmer Salloway and his family rarely pass the culvert of Coffee Creek on Route 57 without involuntarily glancing into the still water, where one fall day, they saw the floating head. As always, and just as Farmer Salloway and his family do, take time to think about this victim today. This poor young man who was just madly in love with some girl in 1936 and was killed for it because he was here and although it was so long ago, he still matters. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. I just wanted to hop on one more time and say... Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate you. I truly am sorry for life getting caught up in my podcast. And I really appreciate everything that everyone does in listening and staying true with immersive crime. It's my dream. It's fun to me. You know, it's my hobby. I just love it so much. And I love you all for listening. Thanks so much. I will try to post some pictures of Catherine, and I don't know if there's any on here of the other two, Mr. Miller and the victim on our Instagram page at immersive underscore crime underscore podcast, Um, but I will do my best to get those on there. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you soon. There will be a fun Halloween episode, and that will be the end of the first season of Immersive Crime. Um, So I look forward to that, giving the Halloween episode Halloween's my favorite, not the end of the first season. Um, But there will be a second season. I don't know what state yet. If you have any ideas or have any stories from different states that you would love me to cover, you should definitely send me a private message. Um, But thank you so much for listening. I love you all. Bye-bye.